Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every single Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. And we also post the video version onto YouTube on Wednesdays as well. So make sure you tune in. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the Moore's murders. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the Moore's murders, aka murders done at the hands of Myra Henley and Ian Brady. Now, I mentioned to you guys last week that we are dedicating the month of February to killer couples and scorned lovers, and these two definitely fall under that umbrella. Truly, I believe that they are the epitome of evil and I am very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this case. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Now with this case, I want to start out by talking about Myra and then we're going to talk about Ian and then we are going to move into the murders themselves. But as always, I want to give you a little bit of a background on who we're talking about today. Now Myra Henley was born on July 23rd, 1942 to her parents, Nellie and Bob Henley. And she was born in Crumpsall, which is a suburb right outside of Manchester, England. Now, Myra grew up in a pretty turbulent household. Her father served in World War II and was gone for the first three years of her life. And when he returned home, he struggled with alcoholism and a lot of PTSD and would frequently be violent towards his wife and children. Myra was one of two children, and she had a younger sister named Maureen. After Maureen was born, Myra went to live with her grandmother because the home was just a little too small for a family of four, and her parents were getting adjusted to having a second child. Now, when it came to school and academics, Myra did struggle in her primary school and her elementary school when she had to take the 11 plus exams, which to my knowledge are basically a test that gets taken by a student to essentially show where they land academically and helps guide where they should go after their primary school. So Myra took these tests and really failed all of them. But afterwards, after graduating primary school, she did a 180. After primary school is when she went to Ryder Brow Secondary School. And while there, like I said, her academics excelled. She ended up having an above average IQ and was doing amazingly in school. Now, even though her grades were great, her attendance was always really, really poor. Myra would often just skip school whenever she wanted to, and her grandma also wasn't very strict on making her go to school. Sometimes she would even ask Myra to stay home from school so that she could keep her grandma company or help her around the house. So even though she did great when she was at school, her attendance and being there was a little spotty. Now, part of the reason Myra didn't love going to school was because when she was there, she experienced a lot of bullying. The kids at school would make fun of her for a variety of different reasons. They said that she had a really deep voice. They made fun of her nose. They told her she had a square body. So she was really just tormented by her peers. And obviously, I think that we can all agree that this would make anyone not want to go to school. 
Because of the frequent bullying, making friends for Myra was very difficult. However, she did have one friend. It was a 13-year-old boy named Michael Higgins, and Myra, who was 15 years old at the time, would often babysit Michael. The two would spend a lot of time together. Myra felt a really close connection with Michael. She truly felt like he was her only friend. However, tragically, when Michael was 13 years old, he ended up dying in a drowning accident, and this This was completely devastating to Myra, and she really put a lot of guilt on herself for this. She felt like if she had been there that specific day with Michael, then he would not have drowned. She felt like she was a very good swimmer. She was a very strong swimmer, and so if she was there, he wouldn't have drowned, and again, she just put a lot of guilt on herself for this, and it really was a very devastating time for her and something that took a lot of time to get over and to get through. Now, three years after Michael's passing, when Myra was 18 years old, is when she got a job working as a secretary for a company called Millard's Merchandising, which was a manufacturing business that manufactured different oils and soaps. Now, during her first day on the job is when Myra got introduced to a 23-year-old man named Ian Brady, who had been working as a store clerk for the company for the past two years. Ian Brady, whose birth name is Ian Duncan Stewart, was born on January 2nd, 1938 to his mom, Peggy. Ian's biological father passed away three months before he was born, and shortly after him being born, Peggy decided that she was going to give Ian to a local couple named Mary and John Sloan for them to adopt. Now, Peggy did this because she was really struggling to support Ian on her own, and John and Mary already had four children together, and they had raised them. She had known the children. She's seen the family, and she felt like this would be a perfect place for Ian to be. Peggy also really liked the idea of John and Mary raising Ian because it meant that she got to keep a relationship with her son. She got to visit him periodically throughout his childhood, so she was still seeing him. Now, while growing up, it was said that Ian had a lot of very concerning behavior. It was said that he would torture animals, He had killed a cat when he was 10 years old. He had burned a different cat on a different occasion alive. He would cut rabbits' heads off, and he would stone dogs. Now, regardless of this behavior, which I know I hate to even say that, but regardless of this behavior, Ian was actually incredibly intelligent, and he got accepted into a school called Shawlins Academy, which was a school for above-average students. Now, sadly, when Ian got there, his behavior really worsened and he ended up going to juvenile court twice for breaking and entering into different homes and he dropped out of school when he was 15 years old and after dropping out he got a job working as a t-boy for a shipbuilding company. Now after that Ian did have a couple odd jobs here and there. He worked as a messenger boy for a butcher and it was also around this time that Ian got into his first serious relationship with a girl named Evelyn Grant but this relationship ended 
ended when Ian threatened her with a knife. Now, Evelyn actually took Ian to court for this, and he ended up with nine charges against him, and this was right before his 17th birthday. So he got placed on probation on the condition that he was to live with his mom, Peggy. So he had to go back and move back in with his mom. And at this point, Peggy had moved to Manchester and she had married a different man. She married a guy named Patrick Brady, and that is how Ian got the last name, Brady. So that's why he is Ian Brady. Now, Patrick was working as a fruit merchant at the time that Ian moved back in with his mom and Patrick. So Patrick was able to get Ian a job working at the company. However, shortly after, Ian got caught stealing from the market and he was sent to juvie for three months and then sent to a different juvenile facility after that for another two years before he was released on November 14th, 1957 and returned to Manchester. So as you can tell, Ian had a lot of turbulent behavior. He was spending a lot of time in the courts and in juvie. However, after he got released, he decided that he was going to go on a self-discovery journey. And many people thought that this was a really great thing for him. His mom was very excited about this. A lot of people thought that he was turning a new page and he was starting a new chapter in his life. And everyone was really, really, rooting for him. He would go to the library and check out all these different self-help books. He would lock himself in his room for hours and read them. And he really seemed to be starting a new chapter in his life and putting his past behind him. So it was then in 1959 that Ian got the job at Millard's Merchandising, which is where he ultimately met Myra. And during his time working there, his coworkers really enjoyed him. They said that he was a very hard worker who kept to himself a lot of the time. They said that he was very shy. However, the one thing they did mention about Ian was that he did have a little bit of a temper. But again, everyone just chalked that up to it only being a temper. But again, all in all, they said that he really mainly just kept to himself and did his work. So right when Ian and Myra met, the two of them immediately were drawn to each other. Myra had a diary and she would write in her diary about her attraction towards Ian. And on December 22nd, 1961, this is when the two had their first date after Ian asked Myra to go to the movies with him. And then afterwards, the two went back to Myra's house and drank wine and just hung out for the rest of the night. Now, Myra wrote some letters to some of her childhood friends talking about this relationship with Ian, but in some of the letters, there were definitely some red flags. In some of these letters, Myra would slip in this information that Ian had drugged her. Now, obviously, this is a very big red flag. However, Myra wrote these letters almost, if you guys have heard of like the sandwich method, where you say something really good, and then you give kind of like a little bit of a critique, and then you say something really good again. It's like compliment, critique, compliment. That's basically how she formatted these letters. And so when she would say all of these great things about Ian and just boast about him, say the best things about their relationship. And then she would say the bad thing. Then she would say, and then he drugged me. But then she would completely disregard that and go into a new sentence about how much she loved him, thought that their relationship was so great. They got along. They had great chemistry, compatibility. So she really did try and bypass that information while still putting it in these letters. 
Now, Myra's friends claim that shortly after the two began dating is when Myra really started to alter her appearance, and it's believed to be that she altered her appearance to really fulfill Ian's fantasy. She had completely bleached her hair. She would wear red lipstick that she didn't wear prior. She wore thigh-high boots, short skirts, leather jackets, and this was a drastic difference than what she usually wore. And it was at this point in the relationship that Ian and Myra really secluded themselves from everyone, especially out work. They didn't really have any other friends. It was just the two of them at all times. They didn't communicate with anyone else. They didn't talk to anyone else. They spent all of their free time with each other, either at work or outside of work. So the relationship at this point was really ramping up. Now, something that Ian and Myra enjoyed doing in their free time was going to the library and checking out books, but the books that they were checking out were quite interesting. The books that they were checking out mainly consisted of the topics being of crime and torture. Something else that they did quite often was Myra rented out this van. So she rented a van and what they would do is they would sit in this van together and they would plan out bank robberies. That was where they initially started. They tried to figure out how to commit the perfect bank robbery and they were very close to going through with it. They were going to different shootings ranges to practice shooting. Myra purchased two guns specifically for this robbery. However, even though they were very close to going through with it, nothing ultimately came of it. But even though the bank robbery didn't happen, Ian and Myra really changed courses. And instead of focusing on planning the perfect bank robbery, this is when they decided to plan what they called the perfect murder. Now, the plan of the perfect murder started in July of 1963. This is apparently when the two of them began plotting this. It was in early, early July. And according to Myra, she said that Ian became hyper fixated on a book called Compulsion. This specific book was published in 1956, and it basically told the story of two men who were attempting to commit the quote unquote perfect murder of a 12 year old boy. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So now that you have a little bit of a backstory of both Ian and Myra and them as a couple, now we are going to go forward and talk about the murders that these two committed. And again, these are the known murders that these two committed. <laughs> 
On July 12th of 1963 is when Ian told Myra that he was ready to commit this perfect murder. After work that day, he told Myra to drive around in the van that she had rented out, and he was going to follow behind her in a motorcycle. And what they were really doing here is they were on the hunt to catch what Ian called to be the perfect victim. Now, at first, while they were driving around is when Ian spotted an eight-year-old girl and signaled Myra to stop. But Myra actually recognized this girl. She knew this little girl because she was the daughter of her mother's neighbor. So instead, the two kept going. Myra did not want to be connected to this eight-year-old girl. And that is when instead they came across 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Pauline was born on February 18th, 1947 in Manchester to her parents, Amos and Joan, and she also had a younger brother named Paul. On July 12th, Pauline was walking home from a school dance, and typically, her parents never let her walk home alone. However, the original plan was that she was going to walk home with a friend of hers. However, this plan fell through, and Pauline begged her parents to let her walk home alone and told them not to worry that every Everything was going to be fine to trust her. She was 16 years old at this point, and she really wanted to prove that she could do this. The last time she saw her parents was around 7.30 p.m. that night when she was wearing her pink dress and white high heel shoes that she bought that day specifically for the school dance. Now, Pauline was actually a classmate of Myra's sister, Maureen. So when Myra stopped and pulled up towards Pauline, Pauline obviously recognized Myra. This was a familiar familiar face for her. And this is when Myra offered Pauline a ride home and Pauline accepted. Now, once Pauline got into the van, Myra told her that she needed to take a detour on their way home and they needed to go to Saddleworth Moor. Now, Saddleworth Moor is why these murders have been coined the Moor murders because of the moor, Saddleworth Moor. And basically, if you do not know, Saddleworth Moor is a grassland area that has over practically 19,000 acres of rural ground. The moor itself has a lot of wide open fields. There's barely any population out there. And Myra told Pauline that they needed to go to the moor because Myra claimed that she had lost one of her gloves out there. She told Pauline she was wearing gloves. One of the gloves got lost and she knows that it's at the moor. So they need to go out there and they need to look for the glove. And Pauline really didn't seem to have a problem with this. So the two drove over to Saddleworth Moor. Now, something that Pauline did not know was that Ian was following behind them on his motorcycle. Now, once Myra and Pauline arrived, Ian shortly pulled up afterwards and pretended like he was also helping to search with the glove, pretended like this was really the plan all along, like he was supposed to meet Myra there to search for this glove. And Pauline really didn't think anything of it. Again, this was her classmate's sister. This was someone familiar to her. Now, according to Myra, she claims that at this point, Ian took Pauline further into the moor to do what Pauline believed was to look for the glove. However, Ian had a far more sinister plan. Myra claimed that for the next 30 minutes, she herself remained in the van while Ian tortured and murdered Pauline. She claimed that Ian returned back about 30 minutes later 
Peter without Pauline and then walked Myra over to where Pauline's body was. When Myra saw Pauline, she saw that her clothes were all torn up and that she had been nearly decapitated with two slashes to her throat. Myra asked Ian if he had raped Pauline, to which Ian replied, of course I did. Ian then went back to the van to retrieve a shovel, and they buried Pauline's body in a shallow grave. Now, again, according to Myra, she claimed that during the actual murder itself, she stayed in the van. However, Ian told a very different story. According to Ian, he claimed that both him and Myra were present and responsible for the actual murder, and not only was Myra there to witness it, but that she also engaged in sexually assaulting Pauline. So there is a lot of he said, she said going on in this case. Now, the second known murder occurred on November 23rd, 1963, and this was the murder of a 12-year-old boy named John Kilbride. John was born on May 15th, 1951 to his parents, Patrick and Sheila, and he also had two other brothers named Danny and Christopher. Myra and Ian were out walking through a market on the hunt for their next victim when they came across John and offered him a ride home. On that day, John was at the market with some friends of his helping market stall holders pack up their goods for some extra money. Ian and Myra lured John by saying that his parents must be so worried about him and that he doesn't want to be out too late and that if he came with them and allowed them to give him a ride home, they would give him a soda. So John ultimately agreed to this and he ended up getting into the same van and while they were in the van this is when Ian told John that they needed to make a detour on their way to pick up the soda and this detour was going to be to go to Saddleworth Moor to look for the lost Love, which was, again, the same excuse that was used on Pauline. Now, once they arrived at the moor, this is when John got out of the car and began helping, looking for the glove. And similarly to the last murder, Myra claimed that she stayed in the car while Ian then took John out into the moor and sexually assaulted and tortured him before slitting his throat with a six-inch serrated knife. Now, according to Myra, she claimed that after Ian slit his throat with a knife, Ian then took a shoelace and began strangling John to ensure that he was dead. And then after that, Ian buried John's body in a shallow grave. Now, I'm going to pop up a picture right now because there's actually a photograph that was taken by Ian shortly after John's death, and it's a picture of Myra standing over John's grave, and it's unclear how long after John's murder this picture was actually taken, but the ground itself is dismantled, so it's believed to have been not too long after this murder. So not only were Ian and Myra committing these horrendous and horrific murders, but they were actually going back and visiting the places where they killed these children. The next known murder was on June 16th, 1964, when Myra asked another 12-year-old boy, Keith Bennett, if he would help her load some boxes into her van 
man. And afterwards, she would drive him home to his grandma's. So again, we have the same MO. Keith was walking home to his grandma's house and Myra lured him in. Now, Keith agreed to this agreement. And once they were on the road, Ian, who was also in the van, told Keith that they needed to stop off at the moor to look for the lost glove. Now, Myra waited in the van while Ian took Keith out into the moor and about 30 minutes later, Ian returned by himself and admitted to sexually assaulting and strangling Keith with a piece of string. Several months later, on December 26, 1964, Ian and Myra visited a fair where they spotted 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey by herself. Ian and Myra approached Leslie and asked if she would help pack up their car, and then afterwards, they would drop her off at her home. Leslie agreed and got into the van, and that's when Ian and Myra said that they needed to make a quick stop at their house on the way. Now, upon arriving to the house, this is when Leslie was forced to remove her clothing. She was then gagged, and afterwards, Ian and Myra took photographs of her before raping and killing her. Now, the difference with this murder was not only was this murder the only known one that was committed at Ian and Myra's home, but also another difference here is that Ian and Myra actually audio recorded this murder. And that audio recording is going to come into play later, so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Now, after the murder, they kept Leslie's body in the home until the next morning when Ian and Myra drove Leslie's body out to Saddleworth Moor and buried her in a shallow grave. Then, on October 6, 1965, Ian and Myra drove out to Manchester Rail Station where they staked out hunting for their next victim. After a few minutes, Ian spotted 17-year-old Edward Evans. Edward was an apprentice engineer living in Ardwick, and Ian got out of the car and approached Edward, suggesting that the two of them should go back to his house and open a bottle of wine and spend some time together. Now, Edward agreed and got into the car with Ian and told him that Myra was his sister. Now, Edward agreed to this, and he got into the car, which is when he saw Myra. Now, upon seeing Myra, this is when Ian told Edward that Myra was his sister and that the three of them were just all going to go back to their house together. Once they got to their house, Ian opened a bottle of wine and him and Edward began talking in the living room. Now, while they were at the house, this is when something different happened. While at the house, Ian called out to Myra and when Myra came around the corner, Ian told Myra to go get Myra's brother-in-law, which is a man named David Smith. Now, David was married to Myra's sister, Maureen. They got married in 1964 and Maureen's parents parents were really not supportive of this marriage because David had a long criminal record. He had a lot of criminal convictions. And so none of Maureen's family even went to the wedding between her and David. Now, even though Maureen's family did not like David because of his criminal past, David and Ian, surprise, surprise, really got along very well. So from 1964 to 1965, the two spent a lot of time together. They talked again about robbing a bank together 
together and David was very impressed by Ian. So when Myra heard this, even though it wasn't a part of the original plan, she agreed to go out and get David who really didn't live that far away. So she drives out, grabs David and tells David to come back to the house with her, which he agrees to do. Now it's not necessarily confirmed why Ian wanted David there to witness this. However, again, this is just how it played out. Now, once Myra brought David back to the house, she told David to wait outside. So she didn't even bring David into the house originally. She told him to wait outside and wait for the signal to come inside. And that signal was going to be a flashing light coming from inside of the house. So once he saw the flashing light, that was his green light to come into the home. So after some time of David being outside, he saw the flashing light and entered into the house. And according to David, I'm going to read you an excerpt of what he said happened once he got into the home. According to David, he said, quote, I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible hard blow. It sounded horrible." end quote. So as you can see here, David is painting the picture that he was outside of the home waiting for the flashing light. He heard the scream, heard Myra say, Dave, help him. He runs inside, sees Ian standing over Edward with a hatchet, and then watched as Ian hit Edward over the head with it. Now afterwards, David claimed that he saw Ian strangle Edward with an electrical cord. And the initial plan here was to have David help Ian dispose of Edward's body. The plan itself was that David and Ian were going to take Edward's body and carry it to the car. And then the two of them were going to take it out to the moor together and dig a shallow grave. However, Edward's body was too heavy for them to carry at that time. So they decided to wrap his body in a plastic sheet and put the body in the spare bedroom where they said that they would dispose of it later. Now, after this all happened, David went home at approximately 3 a.m telling Ian that he would be back the next day to help transfer the body. However, when he got home, he immediately became sick. He started throwing up and he told Maureen everything about what he had witnessed that night. And throughout this conversation that David and Maureen were having, they both agreed that David needed to go to the police with this information. So at 6.10 a.m., David called the police from a telephone booth and the police picked him up in their car and took him to the Hyde Police Station station. And this is where he told officers everything that he saw the night prior. Now, at this point, detectives decided that they were going to go to Ian and Myra's home that morning. And initially when they got there and Myra answered the door, police told her that they were investigating an act of violence involving guns that had taken place the night prior. They did this because they didn't want Myra or Ian, if he was still in the house, to become suspicious or to act out in any way. So they were just 
just pretending that they were investigating something different. Now, both Myra and Ian claimed that there was no such incident that occurred in their home. They didn't know anything about it, but they allowed police to look around the house anyways. Now, once detectives started looking around the home and got to the spare bedroom, the spare bedroom was locked and police had asked Myra to open it. However, she claimed that the key to the bedroom was in her office at work. Now, obviously at this point, detectives knew from what David had told them that in this spare bedroom was Edward Evans' body. And so they told Myra that they had no problem taking her down to her office and grabbing the key so they could get this door open. But Myra then started stumbling with her words, coming up with excuses as to why she couldn't do that, why she couldn't open the door. But this is when Ian just told Myra, open the door. He didn't seem to have any issue with it. He didn't try and make any excuse for it. Knowing what was behind that door, he still told Myra to go ahead and unlock it because Myra did have the key to this door. And so once Ian stepped in and told Myra to unlock the door, and that is when detectives discovered Edward Evans' body and immediately arrested Ian. Now, Ian was initially arrested on suspicion of murder, but Myra wasn't arrested at all. Now, even though she wasn't arrested, she did follow Ian to the police station and took their dog with her. She refused to speak with the police or make any statement, but both Ian and Myra were consistent in saying that Edward's death was an accident. Now, it's important to remember two things. The first thing is that at this point, police had no reason to believe and they were under no suspicion that Ian and Myra were connected to any other murder besides Edward Evans. So they're just looking at Edward's death. The second thing is that even though Myra was initially let go, over time, police started collecting more evidence and it became more and more clear that Myra was a lot more involved in this murder than she was letting on. But again, all they were investigating at this point was the murder of Edward. On October 11th, Myra did end up getting arrested and was charged as an accessory to murder for Edward. Edward's death. While preparing for trial, police searched Myra and Ian's house, and when doing so is when they found a book with John Kilbride's name on it. Now again, John Kilbride was the second known murder victim. And in this search of the home, they also discovered the nine pornographic pictures of Leslie Downey in a suitcase. The photo showed Leslie with no clothes on and a scarf tied across her mouth. They also found the audio tape, which which was 16 minutes of pure torture. Now, Leslie's mom actually had to look at these pictures and listen to the audio tape to identify that it was in fact her daughter in the pictures and on the tape. And when she did that, she was able to confirm that it was in fact her daughter. So now all of these pieces are starting to come together for police and they're starting to realize that these two, Ian and Myra, are connected to way more than just Edward Evans' death. Detectives started talking around to some of Ian and Myra's neighbors. And this is when they spoke to a 12-year-old girl named Patricia. And Patricia told detectives that she would often spend time with Myra and Ian and that Myra and Ian would take her out to Saddleworth more on several different occasions. 
And that was really how police got the idea to go out to the moor and begin searching the area. It was because of that conversation with Patricia. So on October 16th is when they initially went out to the moor. And when doing that, they discovered an arm bone protruding out of the ground. And the bone was later identified as belonging to Leslie Downey. On October 21st is when they recovered the remains of John Kilbride. And because of the time of year that this investigation was all happening, it was nearing the winter, the search for the remainder of the victims was put on hold at this point. Now, at this point, detectives brought all of this information to Ian and Myra. They told them that they knew about Saddleworth more. They told them that they had found the remains of Leslie Downey and John Kilbride. They told them that they knew about the pictures of Leslie and the audio tape. And this is when Ian starts talking, but he's not confessing to anything. Ian tells police at this point that even though he did take the photographs, of Leslie. He claimed that two men brought Leslie to him and then those same two men took Leslie away and the last time he saw Leslie, she was alive. Now, obviously, police did not believe this story and this is when Ian was then charged with the murder of both Leslie and John. So he's already being charged with the murder of Edward, and now he's being charged again with Leslie and John's murder as well. And when it comes to Myra, Myra was also charged with Leslie's murder and was then charged as an accessory to murder for the death of John. Now, this case went to trial on April 19th, 1966, and this was a 14-day trial. And during the trial, both Myra and Ian testified. Myra testified for six hours and Ian testified for eight hours. During Ian's testimony, he admitted to hitting Edward with an axe. However, he claimed that someone else had killed him. The medical examiner concluded that Edward's death was caused by strangulation. So Ian said that even though he did hit Edward over the head with an axe, he didn't strangle him. Therefore, he wasn't responsible for actually killing him. Now, obviously, David Smith painted a very different picture because he claimed that not only did he witness Ian hitting Edward over the head with the axe, but he also witnessed Ian strangling Edward with the electrical cord. Now, during the trial, they also played the 16-minute audio recording of Leslie's torture, where you can identify both voices of Myra and Ian in this recording. Now, Myra admitted in her testimony that what she did to Leslie was evil and cruel. However, she claimed she did it because she was afraid someone was going to hear Leslie screaming. She basically was blaming her torture on the fact that she did not want to get caught. Now, there was a definite pattern when it came to Myra's stories when she was recounting each of these cases, each of these murders. She would claim that she was there all the way up until the actual act of the kill. So while she would say that she was participating in luring the victims, bringing them from place to place, whenever it came time for the kill, Myra was conveniently never there. She had a lot of excuses, and some of these excuses were that she was looking out the window during one of the murders. When it came to Leslie's murder, she claimed that she was running a bath and that's why she wasn't there for the actual kill. So it was just a lot of excuses on Myra's part. Now, after the trial concluded, the jury deliberated for two hours before finding Ian guilty of all three murders. And then Myra was found guilty of the murders of Leslie and Edward. Now, the death penalty at this point had been abolished six months 
prior to this. So because of that, the two were both sentenced to life in prison. Now, with that all being said, you might be sitting there wondering, what about the murders of Keith Bennett and Pauline Reed? Well, up until this point, no one knew that Ian and Myra were responsible for those murders. It wasn't until 1985 that Ian allegedly confessed to a journalist from the Sunday People that he did kill two other victims, Keith and Pauline. Now, up until this point, police did have an idea that this was the case, but they just couldn't prove it. They figured that this was more than likely because of the timeline, the victimology, but again, they could not prove it. So at this time, police reopened the investigation and spoke to Ian again. However, when police spoke to Ian, he adamantly denied having anything to do with Keith and Pauline's death. So after speaking to Ian, this is when police then visited Myra to ask her about Keith and Pauline. Now, a few days prior to meeting with police, Myra received a letter from Keith's mother. Keith's mother was named Winnie, and in this letter, Winnie was practically begging Myra to let her know what happened to her son. She said in the letter, quote, I am a simple woman. I work in the kitchens of Christie's Hospital. It has taken me five weeks labor to write this letter because it is so important to me that it is understood by you for what it is a plea for help please miss Hindley, help me end quote now when myra was speaking to the police at this point she refused to admit to any of the murders themselves however did say that ian was responsible for keith and pauline's death she claimed that she would try and help police by looking at pictures of the moor and seeing if she could point out the potential grave sites of where keith and pauline were buried however after looking at pictures she claimed that this wasn't going to be helpful she wasn't going to be able to pinpoint where their graves were so instead it would be better if she could physically go out to the moor and help guide them and police actually agreed to do this. So on December 16th, 1986, Myra and police went out to the moor themselves. Police closed down all of the roads onto the moor and had over 200 armed officers. Now this really just ended up being a waste of time because when Myra got out there, she became really flustered. This really ended up being a media circus because the public got knowledge that Myra was being released and physically taken to Saddleworth Moor and the public was not happy about this whatsoever. And more than that, it gave the media the perfect opportunity to swarm Saddleworth more and that's exactly what they did they brought in helicopters there were people out there with cameras and because of this Myra became completely overwhelmed and told police that she could not do this and that she needed to go back several months later on February 10th 1987 this is when Myra finally formally confesses to having involvement in all five murders so Pauline John Keith Leslie and Ed Edward, this is when she finally confesses to all of it. This is something that she had not done up until this point. And the recording of her statement of her confession was actually 17 hours long. Now, even though they finally got a confession, police were not 
satisfied, so to speak, with this confession. They really felt like it was a performative act on Myra's part. During the confession, Myra would always say things like she was involved, but then she would try and take it back and say that she was never there for the actual kill. So there was a lot of contradictions in her statement. They felt like the little emotion that she did show during her confession was all fake and performative and very strategic. It just felt very, very disingenuous which there is a point to be made that a serial killer probably will not be genuine in a confession such as this. However, I digress. So now the question was, was the prosecution going to try Myra for all five murders? Were they going to try her now for the murders of Pauline and Keith? However, the prosecution came forward and said that they were not going to be going forward with a new trial for Pauline and Keith's murders because both Ian and Myra were already serving life sentences, so there was no need for a trial. So technically, to this day, Ian and Myra were never formally charged with the murder of Keith and Pauline. Now, around the same time that all of this news became public, Keith's mom, Winnie, sent another letter to Myra, begging that she help police find Keith. Now, this time, Myra actually responded. In her letter, Myra wrote back to Winnie, thanking her for her sincerity in the letters. She also said that had Winnie wrote her 14 years ago, that she would have been more inclined to confess earlier and help police, but she also said that she did not know where Keith was. Shortly after this, in March 1987, Myra went back to the moor with police for a second time to help search for the bodies of Pauline and Keith. And while she did narrow down different areas where she believed the graves could have been, she didn't remember exactly where they were buried. It is important to remember that this is a 19,000 acre area. This is not something small. And a lot of this area does look the same. It's a lot of fields. It's a lot of grassland. So it's taking police a long time to search through the entire thing. And now they have Myra saying that she doesn't remember where exactly their bodies were buried. However, again, she did narrow it down to two areas. Those areas were called Colin Brown Knoll and Hograin. So even though police were now narrowing in on their search for those two areas, they still were coming up empty-handed. That was until July 1st, 1987, when police finally were able to recover the remains of Pauline's body, which was buried in a three-foot grave. So now the police have recovered Pauline's remains. They have the remains now of Edward, Leslie, John, and Pauline. However, to this day, Keith's remains have never been recovered. However, I do want to talk a little bit about this because there has been some speculation and some recent speculation speculation at that as to whether or not Keith's remains have been recovered. Now, Ian was brought to the moor twice on two different occasions to help search for Keith's body. However, again, this was unsuccessful. And I do also want to mention that soon after his visits to the moor, Ian wrote a letter to a news reporter saying that he was involved in an additional five murders that had nothing to do with the original Moore's kills. He claimed that he killed a man in Manchester, 
murder. He claimed that he killed two more victims in Scotland. He claimed that he killed a woman and dumped her body in a canal. Now, police did look into all of this. They looked into different unsolved cases and missing persons cases. However, there weren't any cases that matched the description that Ian was giving. So there wasn't enough evidence to launch an official investigation. Now, in 2003, a new operation was launched to search for Keith's body, and this was called Operation Maida. And this is when police used satellite and more advanced technology. However, still, they weren't coming up with anything. But here's where things get a little suspicious, because in 2017, police actually asked the court for an order to unlock two briefcases that Ian owned. And to this day, those briefcases had remained locked. And I'm not exactly sure the technicality of why they've remained locked all this time. However, when police went to the court and asked for an order to open the briefcases, the court denied this because they claimed that there was no information in there or that there wouldn't be any information in there that could help lead them to Keith's body. But police, on the other hand, really thought that this was a missed opportunity because there very well could have been information as to where Keith's body was in Saddleworth Moor in these briefcases. Ian and Myra were keeping the pictures of Leslie in a suitcase, and so they thought it was very possible that maybe some information about Keith was in these briefcases. However, to this day, we still don't know. Now, on October 30th, 2022, so really not too long ago, it was reported that an independent investigator named Russell Edwards claimed that he found human remains while searching Saddleworth Moor for Keith's body. Russell said, quote, I spotted something and thought, hang on, this is very much a grave, end quote. Russell had been investigating Keith's case independently for seven years up until this point. He said, quote, I've been looking at Keith's picture for seven years. He's my inspiration. This wasn't a case of I just walked on the moor one day and found a dig site and dug it up, end quote. Now, Russell found what he thought to be skeletal remains, specifically a human skull that was was believed to be child-sized. He found an upper jaw with what he claimed to be a full set of teeth, and Russell handed everything over to police, and police went and searched the area. However, they released a statement afterwards saying, quote, at this time, there is no evidence of the presence of human remains. The jaw was considerably smaller than a juvenile jaw, and it cannot be ruled out that it is plant-based, end quote. So even though there was believed to be progress made, and to this day, Russell Edwards truly in his heart of hearts has come forward and said that he believes that he found Keith's remains. To this day, it's never been confirmed and there has been no other progression since then. Now, in terms of Ian and Myra, Ian actually got diagnosed with being a psychopath in November 1985 and sent to a high security hospital. So he went from being in prison to a hospital and he actually wrote a book in 2001 called The Gates of Janus, where he analyzed different serial killers. Now, as you can imagine, and the public was very much not happy when this book was published. They claimed that Ian should not be given any sort of platform or given any sort of ability to write a book whatsoever. Ian also wrote a letter to Keith's mom, Winnie, in 2005, telling her that he could take police right up to her son's grave, but authorities were not allowing it to happen. So again, he's really just pretending that he is not to blame here. He's saying that it's the police's fault that her son's remains had never been recovered and that he had been wanting 
willing and willing to help, even though he had been there two times prior, he's still claiming that it's not his fault. In 2012, Ian applied to leave the mental hospital and go back to prison, but this request was denied. Ian ultimately died of pulmonary disease on May 15th, 2017. Now, both Ian and Myra wrote letters back and forth to each other until 1971 when Myra ended their relationship. Myra ended up falling in love with a prison ward while she was incarcerated, and the two began a relationship. Now, Myra did plan a prison escape with her prison ward girlfriend named Patricia. However, the two got caught, and Patricia was sentenced to six years in prison. And on November 15th, 2002, Myra died from bronchial pneumonia at the age of 60. And that, you guys, is the case of the Moores murders. I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this case. I'm interested to know what you think about Keith and his remains and were they found, were they not found, and everything that comes along with that. So definitely let me know what you think about this case in the comments below. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, if you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every single Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. I will be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.